I would like to ask that you please open your Bibles now to 2 Samuel chapter 9. As Christians, we live our lives based upon what we find in the Scripture. However, there is a large portion of the Bible that is often ignored. The Old Testament makes up about 70% of our Bibles, and many Christians overlook it or, at the very least, underappreciate it. If you are going through the Bible reading plan here at our church, first of all, thank you so much because it is a wonderful thing for us to literally be on the same page with one another, knowing what we are learning, so that if you have any thoughts or questions or concerns or or just epiphanies about the goodness of God, you can share that with those in the church, and they will know exactly what you're talking about because they are right there with you. If you have been going through that process, then we have just completed the books of the law. You have now officially made it through the books of Moses, and now tomorrow we are getting ready to enter into the book of Joshua. And as we have gone through that, many of you have told me about how blessed you have been to hear what God is teaching you through parts of the Bible that many have either never read or have never understood. And to the glory of God, I am so thankful for that. Now, admittedly, it is more difficult to understand parts of the Old Testament than it is to understand the New. It's more difficult because it is farther away, and especially because the people of the Old Testament are under a different covenant than we are. And so the things that God has commanded through the law operate somewhat differently than they do now. For example, Colossians teaches us many things that we see in the law, such as their feasts and the Sabbaths, are shadows of things that were to come, but the substance is Christ. They were all designed as a picture to point you to what was coming in Jesus. And Jesus himself gives us the ultimate tool in knowing how to understand the Old Testament. When speaking to the Pharisees in John chapter 5, there is a discussion that takes place where Jesus displays his equality with the Father in various ways. And as he does that, the Pharisees are infuriated because he is declaring that he is God. Now, there are many people today that will tell you that Jesus never claimed to be God. Well, the Pharisees definitely did not get that message. They believed he was declaring himself to be God, which is why they desired to stone him at that point. But in the middle of that conversation, Jesus says to them in John chapter 5, verse 39, he says, you search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life. But, he says, these are they which testify of me. In other words, Jesus tells these Pharisees that the whole Old Testament which was the only Bible written up to that point, all of these words, every last one of these passages, all of these chapters are about me. And that is the ultimate hermeneutic. That is the ultimate tool in determining what is the Old Testament about. So we know the answer. The question is, how does this relate to Christ? Now, sometimes that can be really challenging. One of the things that I know many of you have noted was going through the book of Leviticus this year, how much more you enjoyed it because you could see the link between what was taking place there and what was happening in the life and ministry of Jesus himself. Well, sometimes it's easy to see what the link is. And there are occasions like the one we will examine today where we see massive evidence of the foreshadowing of the grace of God as it will be displayed in the life of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> 
David is often paralleled with Jesus, especially in the early stages of David's life and his rule as king. The passage that we're about to read this morning takes place directly after the death of Saul and the subsequent transition from Saul's rule to David's rule over Israel. The first period of his reign was filled with war against the enemies of Israel that sought to use this power vacuum now that Saul has died to as an opportunity to strike the Israelites and try to conquer them. And now what we find is that David was victorious over his enemies and he was able to sit down over his nation for the first time. And this is the very first thing that we see him do now that he's in power. Please follow along as I read the chapter for us now. This is God's word. And David said, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may, sh- I may show kindness to him for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show kindness of God to him? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. Let's pray. Father God, we come together today to hear your word to delight in your word, but much more, Lord, not just the text, but what the word represents, which is Christ himself. Lord, we we desire to know you, to to have fellowship with you. Lord, we desire to serve you and for you to serve us through the text this morning. So God, we ask that today this would be a genuine service. Help us, Lord, to know you more, to live for you better. And God, in all of the things that we hear today, we ask that truth would be spoken and truth would be received. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. Today what we're going to do is just examine three main elements here 
of what we find taking place in this chapter, and then I'm going to attempt to apply these words to your life. Let's begin by considering three main points. First, Mephibosheth's predicament. Secondly, the king's promise. And finally, Mephibosheth's privilege. Let's start with Mephibosheth's predicament. David's relationship with Saul's family had been complicated, to say the least. Saul sent David to represent the nation, remember, to fight Goliath. David had gone in, and he'd even put on Saul's armor, and David said, I can't wear this. And then he went out there, and he did Saul's job by fighting the enemy of Israel. And he stood between Israel and Israel's enemies, and he fought Goliath and won. And Saul, who sent him out there, was furious because now David received all the credit for it. And then Saul gave his daughter to marry David, and of course, Saul tried to assassinate him for it. And then Saul spent roughly 20 years hunting David in the wilderness. And even though David had opportunities on multiple occasions to kill him, David did not raise his hand to kill the Lord's anointed. Yet, at the same time as Saul was the greatest enemy David ever had to this point, David's best friend, perhaps the the greatest friendship we see in the entire Old Testament, is with Saul's son, Jonathan. Now, this is due in part to the fact that Jonathan truly was a godly man, and so was David. And so having this in common, they shared a common bond with the Lord. But because of Saul's sin, God promised that the kingdom would be taken away from Saul, and the line would not transfer down to his son, Jonathan. He would not inherit the kingdom, and that necessitated that God also took Jonathan out of the picture. But, but here what we see happening is that in those days... A new dynasty could only be securely established if the new king eliminated all of the remaining relatives and supporters of the previous dynasty. It was fully expected to everyone in the kingdom that David would, for the sake of the monarchy, eliminate all of Saul's family line. That he would seek them out, hunt them down, and execute them. This is why we find the last remaining member of Saul's family in this place called Lodabar. This place, Lodabar, is a desolate land. It is wilderness. The name Lodabar means no pasture. Now, I'm just going to give you a little lesson here on what that means for this kind of an agrarian culture. If there is no pasture, it means there are no animals and there are no plants, which, by the way, is what makes up the diet of the human body. Therefore, if there are no plants and there are no animals, likely there is little to no water. This man would only be there for one reason. The main reason that anyone goes there was to hide. The tables have now turned and David is ruling and it is Saul's line that has gone into hiding. Now imagine how fearful Mephibosheth must have been when he heard that David was looking for him. It probably appeared to him that Ziba, his grandfather's servant, the master of Saul's house, had sold Mephibosheth out in in order to get favor with David. Now, he was taken to David's home, and we see the very first thing that he does is Mephibosheth falls down on his face, and he emphatically honors the king and declares, Behold, I am your servant. Now, this word servant is interesting because we use this term to soften it a little bit. Because in America, there is often a correlation between slavery and racism. In those days, servant, slave, there's no distinction in word here. He says, I'm your slave. 
You do with me whatever you want to do with me. Mephibosheth was fully aware of his perilous predicament. In fact, when David does not kill him, Mephibosheth is shocked and he asks him, what is your servant that you show regard for a dead dog such as I? He rightly understands that he is undeserving. In fact, he is by very nature of his birthright under a penalty of death. He has inherited this, but he is not only in danger because of his identity, but also because of his inability. We see twice in this chapter that it references his physical condition. For example, the very last line of the chapter reminds us that Mephibosheth suffered from a physical condition that would have rendered himself to be indefensible. It tells us that he was lame in both feet. Now we see earlier in the chapter, this was a condition that put him in the category that the Bible calls crippled. This is not just a physical statement. This term actually indicates more than just the neurological issue that limited the feeling and use of his legs. This was a serious limitation that probably would have resulted in his feet and legs completely atrophying after never being used and his muscles below the knee never being activated. Therefore, he was put into this category of people who were never able to travel from their homes. Now, in our society, you can connect with people because we have Zoom and we have the internet. And if COVID has taught us anything, it's possible for most of us to work from home. But guess what? You can't do that in the ancient world. If you do not leave your house, nobody knows anything about you except for what is shared. And the people who are in your family often don't speak of you because in those days, if you were unable to leave your home, oftentimes families were embarrassed about you or at the very least desired to protect you. And in Jonathan's case, as being part of the royal line, probably would have for the most part kept him secret so that no one would try to eliminate him or use him to their advantage. So this man had probably rarely left his home and consider the fact that he did not have an accessible community. There were no wheelchair ramps. There were no sidewalks. There were no cars. So when the primary mode of transportation in this time is walking, a person who was lame required assistance in order to do just about anything. He could not care for himself. Consider if you wanted a drink of water, you did not go to the sink to get it. You went to a well. He could not do that. He could not protect himself. He was absolutely dependent upon the care of someone outside of himself. You and I are supposed to view ourselves here as Mephibosheth. We begin out our lives as enemies of God. We are literally born into an enemy regime, just like Mephibosheth. We are sinners by nature and by our birthright. Romans chapter 5, verse 12 teaches us that as sin came into the world through one man, death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. This tells us that you are both a sinner by nature and a sinner by choice. You were born into this enemy line. But we are also like Mephibosheth in that we are fully dependent upon the grace of our king for survival. We start out our lives completely dead in our trespasses and sins. You think having no use of your legs is bad. Think about if you were a stillborn, which is what the Bible calls us. I like how Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 12, explains our condition. It says, For thus says the Lord, Your hurt is incurable and your wound is grievous. Two verses later, it defines what that wound is. It says, Your guilt is great, because your sins 
are flagrant. Your sin has rendered you incapable of making one move towards God. You were born a sinner by nature, and you have become a sinner by choice. We, like Mephibosheth, are all in a dire predicament. We are hopeless, and we are helpless, unless the king himself comes to our aid. Which brings us now to our second point this morning, the king's promise. Now, notice that the conquering king is passionate about keeping his promises. Now, in a democracy like ours, when somebody wants to become a governor or a president or a mayor or pretty much anything, you have to run to be voted on by the populace. And when that happens, you have to make promises about what you will do when you get into that office. Now, for the most part, what happens is people will make a lot of promises, and then they will get into office, and they will only be able to accomplish a small portion of those promises that they make. And regardless of which side of the aisle they are on, whether they intentionally avoid them or because they are as gridlock, they are unable to accomplish much of what they want to. But oftentimes, the question about whether or not somebody is reelected is fully determined by how much they've actually stuck to their promises. So for that reason, there is a desire on their part to say, look, I have done what I said I will do. But David is not in a democracy. David is in a monarchy, which means once you get into office, there's only one way out, and that's death. So once he gets in, he is in. He doesn't have to keep his promises to anybody. Yet we see that he is passionate and absolutely completely dedicated to doing exactly what he said he will do. Now you might... Uh, be saying to yourself, where in the world does Caleb see anything about a promise here? It says he wants to show kindness to somebody, but I don't see anything about a promise. Doesn't it just say that David desired to show some kind of a kindness to Jonathan's family? Well, in order to fully understand what I'm talking about, you need to go back a little bit to 1 Samuel chapter 20, verses 13 through 15. And this is where we read the foundation of what I'm talking about in terms of promises. This is a conversation that took place between David and Jonathan when Jonathan finally realizes that his dad really does want to kill David. And this is when Jonathan realizes that the kingdom has been taken away from Saul and has now been given to David. And Jonathan realizes in this conversation, that means that he necessarily is going to die. And this is what Jonathan says. He says, may the Lord be with you as he used to be with my father. But as long as I live, promise me that you will show me kindness because of the Lord. And even when I die, never stop being kind to my family. And David promises. Now there's a pattern that we see in the Bible of people who are undeserving encountering this kind of kindness on behalf of another. This word that he uses for kindness is a very specific Hebrew word. It is the word hesed, which literally means covenant love. Show covenant love to my family. This is the word that God himself uses when he speaks to the Israelites and he says, I have loved you with a covenant kindness. I have given you hesed. Now, David sought to show kindness to Jonathan's offspring because he loved Jonathan and because he had promised to show that same kind of kindness to his family. Now, in this way, David is a perfect example of the greater king, Jesus himself. Just like David covenanted together with Jonathan to save children, God has a covenant that he has made to save his people from their sins. 
And as King Jesus, is, he is so desirous to show kindness, to show said to his people, even though we start out as his enemies. Now, there was no advantage for David in this arrangement with Mephibosheth. Similarly, there was no advantage to God in saving us. He did not need us. He was not lonely. There's this faulty notion out there that God had to create us because without us, he would be lonely. Well, there's a doctrine called the aseity of Christ, which speaks of our aseity of God, which speaks to the fact that he is completely happy, completely comfortable, completely unneeding of any of us. And he was for eternity past before creating the world. He does not need us. He saves us and redeems us, not because he's lonely or because he requires our assistance, but because he desires to show covenant kindness to us. He is displaying the fact that at his very core, God is a covenant-keeping, enemy-redeeming, grace-giving king who loves sinners like you and me. And just like Mephibosheth, we are undeserving recipients of kingly favor and of mercy. Which leads us to our final point of the morning, which is Mephibosheth's privilege. Now, it'd be really easy for us to rapidly speed past the incredible value of the gift that was given by David. Notice how it speaks about how Mephibosheth received all the remaining goods of Saul's household. David doesn't take anything from Saul's line. He gives it all to this man. He is not enriched by this situation. But if you pay close attention, those goods, those things from Saul's line, they are given almost no attention in this chapter at all. If you want to know what an author is emphasizing anywhere in the Bible, look for repetition. Notice how in this chapter there are four occasions where it speaks of how the kindness of David, the kind of kindness he is going to show, is delivered by inviting this man from an enemy regime to sit at his own table. Now you might think of that as not being a big deal because you would be very happy to have any number of people come to your house and sit at your table for dinner. Big deal. So he had this guy over for lunch. So what? Well, the answer to that question lies in the very last sentence of verse 11, where it says, So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Now, Mephibosheth was not just some random visitor who would pop in and pull up a chair at any open place and get whatever scraps were left over from the meal. Mephibosheth was to be treated just like one of the king's own children. David was effectively adopting this man into his own family and declaring, I will protect him and I will provide for him. Now, I wonder if David ever thought of the parallel here between what he had written in the song that we call Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I wonder if David ever remembered the words that the Lord prepares a table for me in the presence of my enemies when he was feeding this man. Regardless of whether or not it was that specific, we do know that David certainly understood that by showing Mephibosheth this kind of covenant kindness, he was reflecting the love of God. Now, how do we know that? Because David says in verse three, Is there not still someone in the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? As David would carry this former enemy to the table, he knew he could only do this. He could only show this kind of love because likewise, he had been welcomed to God's table. 
David understood the adopting love of the Lord, that he literally makes us his own children. For he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, Ephesians 1.5. And Paul also writes in Galatians 4.5 that Jesus came, quote, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. But there is, however, a massive difference between the gift that was given by David and the gift that was given by Christ. The biggest difference here is the magnitude of the cost. I mean, really, what was the expense to David in this gift? A couple of sandwiches each day? Big deal. Maybe a room to stay in? Who cares? But what was the expense to Jesus? Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10 tells us what it cost Jesus for us to be adopted into the family. It says, quote, It was fitting that he, Jesus, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, that's adoption, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Jesus had to suffer in order for our adoption to take place. Jesus paid a great price, the cost of his own blood, and he did this in order to carry us to that table of the Lord. Revelation tells us that those who are in Christ have been invited to celebrate with the Lord at the marriage supper of the Lamb. We are forever going to experience the joy of having been brought to his table despite our heritage and despite our inabilities. And we are welcomed there because we have been shown the covenant kindness of our gracious Savior for the sake of someone else. So I want to leave you with a few simple applications here before we close. First of all, if you don't know Christ, I commend you to turn to Jesus. I want to briefly speak to any friends with us today that just don't know the Lord. Perhaps you're here for any number of reasons. Maybe, maybe you're visiting. Maybe you've been here many, many times, but you just haven't yet trusted in Christ. If you're not a Christian, you need to know that you still stand as an enemy of God and that you still stand under his wrath. The greatest need that you have in this life is to be brought into the family of God. And you can be brought to his table because Jesus died to ensure that you can be transferred from the enemy regime into his own dynasty. And how do we know that? Consider what it says in Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 through 14. This is what it describes salvation as doing. It says, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So if you have not yet come to know Jesus, turn to him now, repent of your sin, believe that his death was of value for your salvation and you will be saved and you will be made a child of God. Secondly, I want to speak to those who do know him to be humble. Now I want you to see the response that Mephibosheth has when he came to David. Remember, he fell down on his face and he began to say, I am your servant. And that's how we all start when we come into the kingdom, is it not? There is not a single person who has ever been saved. There is no Christian who has ever been born into the kingdom without the posture of their heart being completely laid out before the Lord. That's how we all come in. The problem is that over time, we have a tendency to forget just how gracious the Lord has been to us. And we take for granted the table of the Lord. 
we begin to imagine that we have become the master of the house. So my encouragement to you is to humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he might exalt you. First Peter chapter 5, verse 6. Imagine, if you will, Mephibosheth taking those legs of his and throwing them up there onto the table and sitting there with his feet on David's table, leaning back and relaxing and acting as if this is my house now. I don't think he ever reached that point. He always remembered that he was an undeserving recipient of the amazing grace of God. And that should be exactly where you and I stand every day of our lives. Here's my third application for this morning. Do not consider lightly the Lord's Supper. Now this supper that we often share is a picture of the union that we now share with Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul condemned the actions of the Corinthian church when they were treating the Lord's Supper without proper reverence or care. This meal that we regularly enjoy together, as often as we do it, is for the purpose of remembering Christ. And we remember that he has made us part of his own family by the breaking of his body and the shedding of his blood. Now, when we do this, when we observe the Lord's table, it is important that you understand this is done in reverence and awe as a uh, picture to point us right back to Jesus. Now, fourth, I want us to consider adoption. Now, this is certainly not the main point of the text, and it is definitely not the main point of of what we see happening here in the Scripture. But it is certainly present. And this is one of the clearest examples of adoption that we see in the entire Bible. And I want to encourage you to see how adoption is genuinely a picture of what God does for us in the gospel. And I am incredibly grateful that we have people in this church who have been adopted and people in this church who have adopted children. I am incredibly thankful that the Lord has put that on the heart of some people to reach out and love someone who otherwise would never be part of their family and never be their responsibility. And I want to encourage this church to always be the kind of church that facilitates and assists and supports and provides for adoption opportunities. And if the Lord is leading you and your family toward adoption, please do not harden your heart to it. Show the kindness of God by giving the great gift of family. Now, if the Lord is not leading you to do that, There are people who should not do this. If you want to know more about adoption, I know some, but I know places to point you that know a lot and ways that you can begin prayerfully determining if this is God's will for your life. But what a blessing it would be if the church in this country rose up and all of the adoption agencies were closed because to the glory of God, the kingdom of God would begin serving the people of this world. Uh, Fifth point this morning, show kindness. Let's learn here from David's example of what he's doing. Let us seek out ways to show the kindness of God to others. And let me clarify what I just said and what I did not say. What I did not say is when something just happens to fall apart and let's say it just falls in your lap, it's something that you are required to do in order to fulfill your familial responsibilities or work responsibilities, that there is someone directly in front of you that is in desperate need of help, and so you just help them. And you do that because you have an obligation to do that. That is not what I'm talking about today. Should you do that? Of course you should do that. What I'm talking about is what David does here. He literally seeks out opportunities to serve and to show kindness to others. Now, he's, of course, not our best example of this. Jesus was perfectly fine and perfectly happy in heaven 
being worshiped by angels, and he sought us out at great cost. So let us not just imitate David. Let us imitate Christ by seeking out opportunities to show kindness. Notice that there are four occasions here where David says, is there anyone left that I can show kindness to? In a far greater manner, Jesus, after conquering his enemies, he has been seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, and he sought us out to show us kindness. So let's just ask ourselves, is there anyone out there that I can show kindness to? First, look around this room. Is there anyone here that you can show kindness to? And then go beyond this room and say, is there anyone out there that I can show kindness to? I was so encouraged to hear of how many of you were out there shoveling your neighbor's walkways during the crazy amounts of snow that we received this year. Is that going to bring anyone to heaven? Probably not. But is that going to declare the glory of the Lord and show kindness of God to others? Yes, it will. Seek out ways to show kindness to others. Sixth and finally, give all the glory to God. In our text this morning, Mephibosheth gets all the benefits, but David gets all the glory. He is the one who we look to and revere for his abundant kindness in this chapter. David is the one that we cheer on. In a much greater sense, our salvation is like this. We have done nothing to earn it or to build it or to buy it. We have been redeemed apart from any merit and apart from any works. God had to do the most extreme thing imaginable to make this possible. And he had to send the treasure of heaven, Jesus himself, on a rescue mission to pay our debt. And we are brought into the kingdom by the convicting and converting work of the Holy Spirit. And as often has been stated by pastors throughout church history, when you come to salvation, the only thing that you bring to the table is your sin. And what that means is, because of your inheritance from the line of Adam, and because of your inability being dead in your trespasses and sins, you could do nothing to come to God on your own. You are completely dead in your trespasses and sins. This requires that all the work of salvation is all placed on God himself. He is the one with the onus and the power and the capability and the effort to do it, and he does it. And if you are saved, all glory goes to God. Zero glory goes to you or me. And that is exactly the way it is designed to be. So to the glory of God, if you are saved, praise God, give him all the glory today and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much for this amazing example that we see of kindness being shown and this mercy being given to Mephibosheth. But God, what a greater level of mercy and kindness we have encountered because of your great love, the covenant kindness you have given to us because of your son, Jesus Christ, and his ministry to us in his life, death, and resurrection. God, we ask that every person in this room would be motivated to live for you and to love you because of what we have learned. In Jesus' name we pray.